2: Winning the world title meant everything to my father. Did he know spectators were killed? Did he know trips was killed? No. That changed everything. That changed everything. And it it was the most bittersweet moment I think a human could possibly have.
3: Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. This week, we're celebrating the life and career of a Formula One legend, a man who won the World Championship 60 years ago this week. And not only was he the first American to clinch the sport's biggest prize, he did it by winning at Monza in a Ferrari. The man I'm talking about is, of course, Phil Hill. Phil died back in 2008, so my guest is his son Derek, a former racer himself and someone with an encyclopedic knowledge of Phil's career. He tells us about his father's journey from his home in Santa Monica, California, to the racetracks of Europe and ultimately to the top of the motorsport world. He gives a fascinating and almost chilling account of Monza 1961, the bittersweet moment when Phil clinched the world title. Bittersweet? Yes. On the day that Phil won the sport's biggest prize, his Ferrari teammate and closest rival Wolfgang von Tripps was killed. It was a tragic end to a closely fought season. So sit back and immerse yourself in a very different era of Formula One and a very different driver to the norm. Phil Hill was an intense and passionate man and his story is told quite brilliantly by Derek. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Derek, it's great to have you on the show. Um, We're now at the 60th anniversary of your father's world championship success. What did winning the world title mean to your dad? Winning the world title meant everything to
2: my father. Uh, He set out on his journey in motor racing, I think trying to prove himself at every stage along the way. And he always wanted to believe that he could be a top driver uh, at the highest level. And he proved that very much so in sports cars, driving for Ferrari. But there was always a question in his mind. Was he good enough to win in, in Grand Prix racing? And it, it took time. It took some years. But he got there. And to actually win the world championship was kind of like reaching the summit. There was, there was nothing left that he had to prove. Did he talk to you about it much? no no he he didn't have to talk about it we, we I pretty much lived it with him uh even though i i this happened years before I was even born. he lived the rest of his life as a world champion and he was honored for it continuously uh it was always associated with with his name uh in any introduction in anywhere we went uh it it, it It just became
3: his identity, and so it's just who he was. And what about being the first American world champion? Was that a a tag that he was very proud of? He was very proud of it, yes, uh,
2: absolutely, because he was also such a history buff. He grew up reading about the European races at Le Mans and the Mille and the Targa Florio, all, all the pre-war racing was something that he read about and romanticized. And that's what really, I think, brought him into to the whole European racing scene. So for him to now become part of that legacy, I think, is what meant so much to
3: him. But Derek, where was the link? Why was Phil Hill, born in 1927, reading about Le Mans and the Mille Miglia. What was it about the European racing scene for him?
2: I'll just say it. My father was an oddball. He, and he, he, admit, <laughs> he admitted it. He, he was not a normal uh, kid growing up in Santa Monica back in the 1930s and 40s. He, you know, it was the post-war. All these servicemen were coming back and the whole hot-rodding culture was really taking off. And L.A. was like a hotbed for that because you had all the tuning shops and the guys coming back from the war with all these skills, and everyone had that sort of need for adrenaline, need for speed. And my father was was more interested in European cars, and he he always sought it out. I mean, he did become a, a mechanic for for a midget racing team, but he really had no interest in it. He didn't he didn't see the thrill of going around in circles in the dirt is a path that he wanted to take forward. When he saw an MGTC on the road or or a Jaguar XK120, that's what excited him. He thought those were the machines he wanted to be in.
3: Was there any racing in his family at all, or a love of cars or a love of machines?
2: Absolutely. No racing, but his mother and his aunt loved automobiles. They absolutely loved automobiles and they loved them big, fast. They they just were absolutely nuts about cars. And so I think he really got it from his aunt, who who had been purchasing cars ever since he was a young boy and had just this real love for them that she imparted onto
3: my father. So tell us about the journey from LA to the racetracks of Europe because, I mean, back then in the 50s, that's a big deal. That, that's, that's not an easy journey, is it? It was a big journey. And he, he made it over to Europe
2: through his interest in, in import cars, European cars, mainly British cars, by working for an import agency in Hollywood called International Motors, where he was working on cars uh, that were being sold to uh, all the movie stars and, and and very wealthy clientele, they sent him over to Europe for service training uh, to work at MG, at uh, Rolls-Royce, at Jaguar SU carburetors in the late 1940s. And before he came home, he went to Silverstone to see the first Grand Prix, the first Grand Prix of modern day era, when... Farina won, and even uh, Queen Elizabeth was there,
3: uh, waving to the crowd. And was it being at that Grand Prix, 13th of May, 1950, was that the moment that he decided he wanted to be a racing driver? You know, I don't think he even had
2: the idea yet that he could be a racing driver. He, the, the, the limits of his imagination w- w- and his ambition was that he wanted to be working on race cars. He wanted to be wrenching on the race cars for top teams. And, and that, that, was, that was where he had his goals set, was to, to, to be a top mechanic. However, things all changed because he brought back with him from England a Jaguar XK120 that he bought from the factory uh, in checked luggage on the Queen Mary, drove it from New York across the country to Santa Monica and raced that car and actually started doing very well and won his first important motor race at Pebble Beach in the forest uh, just a few months later. How did he then get back to Europe? It took it took some years. Uh, he... Ended up racing all over the U.S. Uh, the the whole racing scene was really picking up. Um, they were holding races on old airfields, uh, the on public roads. Uh, so he was he was racing for privateers. He was he was buying his own cars. In fact, he met Luigi Canetti, and Luigi Canetti was the importer of Ferraris and was instrumental in the growth. Of, of Ferrari as a brand, as a company, because he, he had convinced Enzo Ferrari, we can sell cars to the, uh, the American market, you know, and Enzo Ferrari was about racing, not about selling road cars, but, but Luigi really had his ear, and really convinced him that selling cars in America was where it was at, and my father was just right there at the right time, and had recognized how good a car, how much potential these Ferraris had to to win the sports car races. and uh, and so he got his first car from Luigi and and then soon had ended up uh, in another Ferrari and was winning races. Uh, you know, it, it, Ferrari was not yet established as a top top mark yet, but my father was right there uh, winning races for them from the beginning. He started with them in nineteen fifty five. He was literally on a boat going to Europe to race for a privateer in a Ferrari in the European sports car races in 1955 when Alberto Ascari uh, was killed testing at Monza. And he was en route, gets a cable telegram while he's on the boat that Enzo Ferrari would like to meet him. And he had to get off, disembark at Barcelona, take the train to Maranello or to Modena rather, meet with, with Enzo Ferrari, who then put him in uh, a car for Le Mans. And there he is, a factory team driver at Le Mans, just a few months later, when the biggest tragedy in, in, in motor that motor racing had ever seen takes place. Right in front of him, right there in plain view, as my father is waiting on the pit lane wall for his teammate, Malioli to come in, uh, it, it is when Pierre Levegue's uh, mercedes just tore through the, the, the crowds and killed over 80 people. And that, that was his introduction to Ferrari. And the race went on. He got in the car, he finished the race. And from there, you know, he became a very prominent sports car driver, winning Le Mans in 58, getting his chance in the Formula One car, uh, really proving himself. But at the same time, seeing his teammates get killed uh, from from Castellotti to you know Portago, then of course Musso and Hawthorne and Peter Collins. Uh, when Mike Hawthorne retired, in his press conference, he said, "I believe that Phil Hill and with Ferrari uh, has the potential to go on to be world champion," and so. He, my father, by the time 1961 had come around, he had really earned his stripes as as a driver at the Scuderia. And so when Trips, who had come back after multiple times having crashes, uh, having to rehabilitate his body, uh, was given that next chance to, to again race for Ferrari, my father and Trips were there, kind of trying to size up who would be the team leader at that point, right? They were trying, there was no established numero uno at Ferrari. And so going, and and here's something important to realize too, when you look back at 1961, is that these were sports car drivers and Formula One drivers. There were only seven races in the, the season, Seven races. I mean, how many are there now, Tom? How many? (laughs) (laughs) Three times is that. Three times more. Three times. (laughs) However, they were doing a lot of endurance racing at at the same time. I mean, the, the season, before the season even started, they were at Sebring. They were often in Argentina. They were at the Targa
3: Florio before the first opening round at Monaco came around Derek, you say there was no number one in 1961 in the Formula One team. Is that how Enzo Ferrari liked it? Did he like to have them on an equal footing and battling each other and and maybe upsetting each other? Is that the way Enzo ran his racing teams?
2: Yeah, Enzo was an agitator. Uh, I think he considered himself uh, an agitator of men. And he also played into this sort of father figure that that he was to these drivers uh, and knew the power he had over them. And I don't think he saw a point in, in allowing one driver to believe he was the number one driver on a team. It was to his benefit
3: to let them battle it out with, with one another uh, all season long. So how did your dad and Taffy Von Tripps rub along together? You know they got along just fine, uh, but really, how
2: well do potential championship winners who are in a, a, a growing rivalry get along? Right? I mean, they're they're passing time, they're with each other, they're teammates. Um, my father didn't have family in Europe, uh, and and I think he he. Felt welcomed by the Trips family to bring him over to Berg Hammersbach and to get a, a peek into Taffy's world there, and uh, you know he felt welcomed by them. But were, were they were they like the Collins Hawthorne, uh, you know, best mates? Not at all. They they were they were rivals, and that the intensity of that rivalry just got more and more heated as the year went on.
3: We're learning a lot about your father during this conversation. Can you just tell us a little bit about his main rival, Taffy von Tripps? Um, he was a count, a German count, but is there anything else you can tell us about him? From what I know about Wolfgang von Tripps was he,
2: he had a hard life before he got to 1961. And, you know, we have to say hard life in, in quotes. I mean, he had... He's, aristocratic background. He, he grew up in what essentially was a castle, but it was during World War II that he was cast out of, of, of his home uh, when, when Germany was being invaded. In fact, he had a, a regiment, a Scottish uh, regiment, first took over the house uh, where he started to learn how to speak English. Then next, it was a, a regiment of, of black American uh, troops that he got along with very well. Uh, so they went through some, some hard times during the war, and he was one of those, those boys that, that the Germans enlisted to dig through the rubble uh, after the bombings. So he'd seen a lot. He'd seen a lot of bloodshed. He'd uh, you know, he was the only child. In this uh, family that had a lot of land to be worked on, it was all agricultural, and so his racing career was not very much uh, appreciated by his parents. Just like my father's, you know, they they both were so driven to be racing drivers, and they had to kind of uh, do it their own way. Uh, and so I, I think that he and he and Taffy probably got along very well in the sense they could relate. Uh, to each other, that they had to race
3: cars, that there was going to be no other way. Did your dad believe he was faster than von Trebs? Well, my father had such
2: a high level of sensitivity to machinery and knowledge of machinery. He was obsessed with the mechanical workings of a car. And that, I think, was was his key ingredient as a racing driver, uh, is that his sense of confidence as a driver came just as much through understanding the capabilities of the car mechanically, which was really more important back in those days than it is nowadays. Nowadays, a driver gets in, he drives flat out as fast as he can. If something breaks on the car or the engineer is talking in his ear, you need to slow it down or, or something's happening, they'll adjust. Back then, it was just you and the car out on the circuit and you were, you were really responsible for preserving that car and not wearing it out, whether it was in a Grand Prix or a, a long sports car race like the Le Mans 24 Hours. And so my father knew he had that mechanical knowledge and expertise that trips did not have. Trips, uh, you know just didn't have a sense for it, didn't really even have a care for the mechanical workings of a car. He was more like, I don't want to say a modern racing driver, but he just would drive the wheels off of it. And uh, if it broke, it broke. He wasn't going to tell the engineers how to
3: fix it. Was it this mechanical sympathy that your dad had that led Enzo Ferrari to regard Phil as perhaps more of a sports car driver early on than a Formula One driver? I would say so. And, you know, my father, he, he had issues
2: with his self-esteem, his confidence. He was not a very confident person. And that sounds ironic because how do you make it to the Ferrari team and win races not being a confident person? He struggled a lot with this sort of self-belief that, that he was good enough. And in sports cars, that mechanical sympathy was his ace. It was everything for him to be able to to drive on the limit for, for hours and hours on end and know what was wrong with the car and how to nurse it to the end. Where he had teammates who didn't care for the long races. Uh, I, 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 probably the British drivers, if you've studied your history... Didn't have a lot of regards for the Le Mans 24 hours in that day. And Collins, Hawthorne, they couldn't wait to get home. Whereas my father was was in it to win it all the way. and, And he just knew how to get the most out of the cars. And had a lot of success in sports cars.
3: He makes his Formula One debut in 1958. He finishes on the podium for Ferrari that season. He helps Mike Hawthorne win the world title in Casablanca. But can we now talk about his year of years, 1961, 60 years ago. Of the seven races he contested that season, he took two wins, two seconds, two thirds. Your dad comes into what is officially the penultimate round of the championship, Monza 61. He's behind trips in the points just, what was his mood? It was a long,
2: hot summer uh, of, of screw-ups, of uh, almost could-have, would-have, should-haves at races leading up to Monza. He felt he had thrown it away, uh, in which essentially he, he, he did almost all he could to throw it away, it seemed. When you look at the French Grand Prix uh, at Rennes, where he spun at Tiloie, Uh, while leading the race, uh, lapping Sterling Moss and spinning in front of him and getting T-boned by Moss and stalling the car, he had it in the bag. He, he He had the championship in the bag on a couple different occasions before he got to Monza. And again, we're dealing with only seven races. Every race really counted. There was the German Grand Prix where he came out and really stamped his authority over trips on his home circuit by being the first driver to, to, to break the nine-minute barrier, uh, showing everyone he had the goods to be the championship-winning driver. And you had... Then in that race, uh, the team not getting the tire situation right and Moss uh, beating both of the Ferraris and uh, big rainstorms during the race. And both uh, my father and Trips spinning out on the last lap in a huge downpour and my father finishing one second behind Trips, which again led to, to my father feeling like he was just throwing the championship away. So going into Monza, the penultimate round, uh, with a four-point deficit, uh, he just knew he had to have a perfect weekend. He had to win that race. Uh, He had been able to test a new chassis going into the weekend. Um, He just was wearing himself out with uh, anxiety about how everything was going to go but he had had a lot of success at Monza. Uh, He had won in 1960, and that was his first Grand Prix victory, Uh, the last win in a front engine uh, Formula One car. And Trips, on the other hand, had crashed a lot at Monza and had pretty much almost killed himself, uh, I think, on a couple occasions. And so My father was a confident driver at Monza as opposed to Trips, who was wondering if he was going to, you know, kill himself again. So there was so much pressure. And to put it in perspective, there had never been a German Formula One champion before. There had never been an American Formula One world champion before. Uh, Trips was all over the uh, magazine covers, the headlines. He was really Germany's next big hope as a, as a sports superstar. And he was feeling the pressure in a big way. Uh, My father wasn't having that much pressure from the American media, from the American racing scene. There was still such a separation, you know, from, from the American audience who would read about these results a couple weeks later, you know, they might hear a little blurb on the radio or, you know, read something on the back page of the sports section
3: but he didn't have the weight on his shoulder like trips did while we're setting the scene a couple more things I wanted to discuss. First of all, um, that beautiful Ferrari shark nose one five six. Now I know you've driven it, um, but just tell us a little bit about the car certainly looked beautiful it was the class of the field that that year
2: wasn't it oh the 156 uh which you know people dubbed the shark nose because of those big intakes in the front that sort of looked like these shark nostrils and just it was such a gorgeous car i, I don't think people had seen anything like it before uh it was sleek beautiful just the red uh it, it was like the ultimate looking race car. And it was fast. It had had really good uh, top line speed. I think probably the first time it rolled out, uh, you know, down the pit lane and uh, the British teams with the Lotuses and the Coopers were looking at this this sleek new, you know, modern Italian, beautiful race car. And the sound of it, I, I think they just thought, uh there goes there goes our hopes this year. And certainly my father and and von Trips
3: felt that they had a very good chance at, at winning the title in 61. And Derek, you have driven that car. I think at Zanvor of all places, actually. Um what was it like? And do you have a newfound respect for your old man having actually driven the car?
2: Yeah, so all the shark noses, let's just, you know, uh put it out there, were destroyed by Enzo Ferrari. Back in the day Enzo Ferrari was scrapping his old race cars.
3: Why? Why would you do that? I'm sure Enzo was asking himself why
2: at the end of his life. But that was that was that who they were they were only thinking forward. What good was an old race car? He probably couldn't stand the sight of an old race car. And they were all scrapped. And I think uh, Alfa Romeo had the same policy for a few years there. And there's a lot of, you know, speculation. Did they end up in the cement at the new factory being built? Or, you know, there's all kinds of ideas of what happened to them. But they were all scrapped. And engines were saved and used in other race cars. But... uh, Two cars have been built to such exact proportions and to detail that that here we have two very, very beautiful examples of, of what the shark noses were uh, with some original parts in them, uh, with gearboxes and some engines that are correct. And driving it was absolutely fantastic. A dream come true. I'd always heard about these cars. I always assumed I would never uh, drive. I always knew I would never drive a real shark nose until the day came when there were two very real examples. And we had them out at Zahnvoort in uh, 2019. And I got to lap the circuit uh, many times. Uh, We were doing some filming. And it's phenomenal. I mean, it's a—it's everything you'd expect out of a Ferrari Grand Prix car. Uh, it just—it feels like it fits you like a glove. It just wants you to to wind up the revs and make it scream. It's so controllable. You know that you've got so much leverage on these skinny tires and this big steering wheel that you just feel like you can do anything with the car. With only one and a half liters, because that was the regulation that year, that you had to keep the momentum going. You know, these weren't cars that you could do big power slides coming out of the corners. Uh, You couldn't make up for goofing it up, driving it in, and getting it messy going into a corner. You you had to be clean, and that actually suited my father's style very well, because he loved big, fast, swooping corners like the old Belgian Grand Prix places like Monza. It's just a beautiful car. I could go on forever about it.
3: You mentioned uh, Monza in terms of a track that would suit it, because that 61 race turned out to be the last one at which... The old banking was used there. Um, Did your dad enjoy that section of track? Such an iconic-looking bit of racetrack, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it was absolutely iconic. Uh, It was the first time my father ever wanted to wear a seatbelt was when he watched the sports cars racing there a few years earlier and saw the drivers kind of bouncing out of their seat and holding themselves in the car by grabbing the steering wheel from underneath and he went to an Army or Air Force surplus store in Milan and actually got some aircraft seatbelts to hold himself down. I mean, it was not a smooth banking like you'd expect on a modern day car circuit or something. So it was a rough ride, but as long as the car and the suspension were up for it, it was just flat out. So it, it was simply a flat out. Uh, you know exercise in 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 keeping it on the road and um he didn't I don't think particularly enjoy it uh but it was it, it was all about how how good your car was um suspension wise and it was all about horsepower
1: without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones
0: who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
3: We've already established that the pressure was on Von Trips, yet he's the one starting the race on pole. Your dad is back in fourth. Was that a surprise Given that he had taken the five previous pole positions, yes,
2: it was something was wrong, and he knew it when he showed up at Monza and the first day of practice. You know, Enzo Ferrari didn't come to the races. He the only time you saw him at a race was at practice uh, uh, on the Friday or whatever it was before the Italian Grand Prix. He, he that was the one time you'd see Enzo there at the track, and. Uh, By the time Enzo got there uh, and practice was done, Trips had put it on pole. He had set the fastest practice time. Uh, He was a second faster uh, than my father and easily and just parked it. He did a few laps and parked it and said, I'm done, you know, like very confidently. Meanwhile, my father realized he's losing a second on an area of the track that was flat out. So it was easy for him to suss out that he was down on power, that there was there was a
3: problem with, with the engine. Did he worry, Derek, that there was something untoward going on and that Enzo Ferrari was trying to manipulate the outcome of the world championship?
2: Perhaps. And the politics on the team were so extreme that all year long he wondered, you know, am I even being considered as somebody they would want as, as a world champion? I mean, Tripp's kind of had it all. Uh, is that sort of uh, dashing count? He, you know, he sort of had the goods in terms of his mannerisms, of his uh, you know of of his pedigree uh, that 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 perhaps Enzo Ferrari saw trips as the desired future world champion representing the Ferrari brand. My father also sort of came across as this kind of scrappy, gritty uh american who, who'd like to get his hands dirty, you know, wrenching on cars. He he didn't have that sort of nobility uh presence about him that somebody like trips had. And my father was also very willing to speak his mind about the cars and and one thing Enzo Ferrari didn't like was was people being
3: critical of his cars,
2: especially the drivers.
3: What? And so- yeah. After qualifying, Monza 1961, I imagine he had a few wo- <laughs> he had a few words to say because he was down on power. So what happened next? Well, let me back it up
2: one step before. Before my father even got the car on the circuit, he found that the gearbox was all screwed up. He had like two first gears and no reverse or two reverses and no first gear. I, it, 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 it was a completely screwed up gearbox assembly. The team wouldn't believe him until finally the gearbox specialist got in the car himself and realized, okay, yeah, we've got a problem. So right off the bat, it seemed like something was not right with the whole the whole dynamic of how the weekend w- w- was meant to play out. Uh, and then he's down on power, and he's telling the team, we've got to do something. I, I need a new engine. And he's up against... Enzo Ferrari is saying, Phil, you, maybe, uh, maybe your, your foot isn't as heavy as it used to be. And he is really winding up, my father. And that was not the right moment to be telling a driver that maybe the problem is with your foot, not with the car. My father was infuriated because the intensity of that weekend, how the whole season had built up to have your team boss not having your back, but instead... Uh, criticizing you, uh, was more than my father could handle at the moment. My father was then adamant he needed a new engine. It it was all about the engine at that point. Finally, finally, uh, Keity, who is a brilliant engineer, and Romolo Tavoni, the sporting director, who both really liked my father and had been there all along, decided, okay, we'll get a new engine in the car. You know, my father said, "We'll." I'll get there the next morning. I'll get there on Sunday morning before the race. We'll uh we'll run the engine in, which in those days you could do. You know, he he did in fact. They 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 swapped out the engine. They found that one of the valve springs was broken. So in fact, my father was correct. There was something very wrong with with the car. And and here's the interesting part is that of all the cars entered by Ferrari, which I think there were five for the Italian Grand Prix, each one went out of the race, except for Trips, who crashed, of course, with broken valve springs. Not a single Ferrari finished the race, except my father, who led the race and won. And it was all due to insisting on having that engine the night before the Grand Prix.
3: Wow. And, and and when he was running it in on race morning, you did that on the open road. Is that right? Well,
2: Monza is a huge park. You know, you've got the, 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 the Autodromo, the, the, the racetrack itself, I think, takes up just a, a small area of, of the all the ground. So there's a lot of roads within the park. And I would imagine that that's where he was running the car in, you know, at early, early hours of the day. Uh, while he could before the people were there and um, doing a lot of practice starts really really getting in tune with with the car until he felt okay we've got this you know it was good for the race and and even carlo ketty said when when the engine was put in the car he 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 referred to it as as a bomb meaning this engine is going to be good phil this will be good
3: Phil, from fourth on the grid, came round at the end of lap one, in the lead of the Grand Prix, a lead that he would never lose. But, Derek, Von Trips was killed on lap two. Was your dad aware of the gravity of the crash during the race itself?
2: He was
3: used to seeing,
2: you know, burning wreckages on the side of the road since, uh, you know, his earliest times racing. And he was not aware of, of, of the gravity of it. He didn't know it was Trips' car. Um, he, he was just focused on 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 the race. And, you know, in that part of the circuit, too, going into Parabolica, you're going at top speed uh, just like you are today going in, into braking for a very fast curve into the parabolica so you know you've got to be very focused on, on on your race and on your line and on staying on the road did he know spectators were killed did he know trips was killed no there was no team radio there was no one telling him what had happened uh and as they did so often uh, in those days, they carried on and they finished the race. And he actually won the race, had won the championship, was ecstatic, it was, it was the, the, the pinnacle of his career. And he had just achieved the, everything he had ever dreamt of, of achieving as a racing driver. Went through the victory celebration, and asked Carlo keaty about Trips. And keaty kind of mumbled something to him that wasn't exactly the truth, but he just knew at that moment that, that Trips was, was dead. And that, that changed everything. That changed everything. And it, it was the most bittersweet moment I think a human could possibly have. It didn't take away the importance of winning a championship to my father. But it certainly, certainly dampened the celebration uh,
3: in a big way. Did your dad ever feel that the crash cheapened his world title?
2: Absolutely not. I mean, it was a game of survival back then. It was, it was truly a game of survival back then. And, you know, I think my father could, could, could rest on that very, very comfortably knowing, you know, it would be one thing if that happened today. If it happened today, like it played out in 1961, that would put a big asterisk, perhaps next to a driver's name. Okay. You won the championship. You're your rival was killed in the in in the deciding race back then you, you know you sterling moss called it a game of russian roulette and uh you know it, it half the battle was to not kill yourself and and my
3: father succeeded in that but how did the crash affect him personally did he ever talk to you about it never talked to me about it
2: no no I I think those those were complex emotions that he never could fully come to terms with. There 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 must have been some some aspects of survivor's guilt of of just trauma uh, having seen so many drivers killed, so many friends, uh, knowing that he. Could have gone back in time in 1961 and sewn up the championship earlier and taken the pressure off of uh, trips, taken the pressure off of himself. Uh, you know, there, there's so many things I think drivers could look back on in those days and just say, I could have done it differently. I, we, we could have avoided this tragedy. Uh, there, there was just a lot of guilt, I think, and and there were no sports psychologists back then to help walk you through your emotions and help walk you through what was happening. Um, I, I think my father would have benefited greatly from the
3: kind of sports psychologists that the drivers can engage with today. He then went to von Tripp's funeral in Germany, where he was a pallbearer, how tough, given everything you've just said, how tough do you think that was for dad? Uh, he described that, and he could talk
2: about that, and he would bring that up, because that, that was just the most mournful day of his life. Um, you know, it, it was rainy, it was cold, the way they carried out those funeral processions. There was uh, Trips' Ferrari cabriolet with the casket in it. They had to walk very slowly. This was a major superstar that had just died, and the people were lining the streets to watch the casket go by. And my father, being a pallbearer, was there walking alongside the car, which had to, to go for quite a distance to get to the cemetery and to where they would uh, the Tripp's family tomb was, and... Uh, there was uh, you know the the lady dressed in black with the lantern walking in front it was all very gloomy and dramatic and it was so muddy that all the drivers were slipping and sliding walking up the hill uh, just with with this heavy casket on their shoulders it, it was horrible horrible i mean this is how you end your world championship season uh It was a day that my father was happy to get through and forget. Let's put it that way. Uh, But that was common back then. Funerals were common back then. There was a funny story there, though, because uh, Lara Ferrari, who was Enzo's wife, was going to all the races. And in fact, she was kind of sent to be the minder of the team and to probably report back to Enzo what's going on. And she was becoming quite an interference on the team in 1961. No one really enjoyed having her around. So she was sent to the funeral with uh, a guy named uh, Signor Manny Cardi, who was the head of global sales for Ferrari, and she wanted to get a ride back to Modena with my father and Richie Ginther. Well, my father and Richie did not want to take Laura, Laura Ferrari back to Modena, they told her they were going to Sweden, that they why, couldn't do it. Why, why Sweden? <laughs> I don't know. It was probably the first thing that came out of their mouths. And Manicardi, who didn't like Laura, and the feelings were mutual, uh, just ended up driving back and are passing my father and Richie, which Manicardi told my father later uh, on the highway. Uh, well, my father and Richie see them coming. They just, they're just they on the highway, and they see them coming, and they're in my father's Peugeot, and they both duck. And there's Laura Ferrari and Manicardi driving by, and, and Mrs. Ferrari says, isn't that Filippo's car? Uh, and he says, I don't know. I don't see anyone driving it. And, <laughs> you know, it was just the way things were back then at, at Ferrari.
3: One of the things that's come across so far in this chat is that your dad was intense. Uh, Obviously, a very fast and brilliant racing driver, but intense. He's someone who thought about what he did a lot. How much did he think about safety? How much did he worry about dying in a racing car? Yeah, it's interesting to, to
2: think of what safety meant back then as to what it means today. I mean, safety is just a word we all uh, know and use, and it's a part of our lives. I I think safety was not yet a commonly, you know, used word or concept back then. I mean, what were we, just 15 years past uh, one of the the bloodiest war the world had ever seen, the casualties in the millions. You know, the world was a different place in 1961. And people's mentalities were still coming to grips with with what, what danger was and how, how much we could tolerate as a society these dangerous sports and activities. My father did not want... You know, to die. He 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 actually was very concerned with his his own self preservation. Uh, would speak about death quite a bit uh, and the danger of the sport. And he he really sized up the risks, and that was one reason why he didn't want to continue on and try and win more championships because he just felt the risks were too great. And one championship. For my father was more than enough more than enough given the risks it took to, to get that
3: I mean is it true that he was sick before the start of each race I think more so earlier
2: on you know he, he really struggled with uh you know he had an ulcer he had to take a year off in his earlier racing years he would get sick I mean he was so incredibly hyper and intense and you know cleaning his goggles and chucking his earplugs and looking over the car. I mean, he he was, people were looking at him going, this guy is completely mad. How can he be a racing driver? How can he focus? It was that moment when he put the helmet on that everything calmed down. When the green flag dropped, he was fully focused and ready to go. Sterling Moss took advantage of that sometime. Sitting on the grid there at Zonvort. My father was on pole. In fact, he and in, in in trips had the same exact time to tenth of a second. But I think because my father clocked the time first, he was given pole position. And uh, Sterling is there, uh, and my father's car isn't starting, and he's behind him on the grid, and. He'd say things like "Phil, Phil, they're taking the the back of your car. They're taking something off. What's going on? The mechanics are coming over and taking the you know the, the the gearbox cover off," and would just send my father into orbit. He would just jump out of the car. What do you mean? What's going on? You know, they knew how to wind him up because he was so locked into the moment.
3: He was gullible in those moments. You say that one world title was enough for Dad. So why did he continue? Because after sixty one. It didn't go so well, did it, really? I mean, you know, when you think of ATS and Cooper and things, it, why didn't he just call it a day? I, okay, that's
2: maybe easy to say in hindsight for him that, that one was enough. Um, and in fact, to be clear, I never heard him say that. It's just in looking back at his career and the things he said, uh, he really truly felt the risks were too great to continue to want to pursue future championships, but if those championships were going to land in his lap, he would take them. If Ferraris were, if the Sharknose was just as competitive in 62 as it was in 61, which it was not, he could have had two championships. Uh, So he stayed on with Ferrari for 1962. The British teams had caught up. Uh, There was uh, what was called the Palace Revolt, and all the key uh, team members left Ferrari at the end of 61. So my father was, was, was sort of stuck at Ferrari with new sporting director, new engineer, uh, new everyone, uh, and the car had not developed for that season. And he had a new sporting director, Dragoni, who wanted Italian drivers to excel. So my, you know it, it was a typical Italian Ferrari divorce where you're just painted into a corner and you're shown the door. And unfortunately, when he went on to ATS, where all of his old team members were, Tavoni and Keity, Boghetti, it was very promising at first. But as many, many new teams go, they, they
3: were nowhere on on the grid. He left Ferrari at the end of 62. Did he fall out with Enzo at any point? I,
2: I I don't think he had any serious falling out. It's, you, the drivers rarely saw Enzo Ferrari to begin with. You know, it was not like uh, after every race, let's check in or let's, you know, let's be on the phone uh, once a week. It, it, it was more through the team. Uh, Dragoni, who was the, 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 the team sporting director just was not a fan of my father's anymore. And uh, Forgieri was a very young engineer, and the team directive was steered more towards who's the next talent. And they were they were thinking that my father was affected by the Trips accident, um, but I don't think he that that was maybe more of a, an excuse than the reality. Uh, for them to say that. And, you know, maybe my time, my father's time at Ferrari was up. His time was up. He had been with them for seven years, had won everything you could win with them. Uh, Even Michael Schumacher had to leave at some point, right? And and so uh, there was never any big blowout, you know, uh, lashing out of words between him and Enzo. Um, but it, the
3: time had, had to come. Do you know what Enzo said to your dad after he won the title? What he said to the press
2: was, abbiamo perduto, which means we have lost. And that's what my father heard. That's what my father heard of Enzo's reaction to that day. And... You know, Enzo Ferrari had bigger things to worry about. Having a a Ferrari driver dead at the Italian Grand Prix uh, was a big problem. Sure, winning the championship, great. He probably was thrilled, but he couldn't say it. Uh, He couldn't go on record, you know, gloating about another championship under those circumstances. So that's what my father heard. Uh, it was a very difficult time, a depressing time for Enzo Ferrari with the team walking out. Uh, you know, your your chief engineer is gone. Your, you know, your team manager is gone. Er- everyone's leaving. And he, he asked my father, almost pleaded with him, will you stay on for 1962? Richie Ginther crumpled up the contract and threw it in Enzo Ferrari's lap when when he was presented with it. Uh, Enzo wanted to give the drivers a pay cut, uh, save money for the team. So it, it, it
3: wasn't good times at Ferrari at the end of 61. Did it frustrate your dad that he didn't have as close a relationship with Enzo Ferrari as some of the guys who'd gone before? I mean, he was at the team in... 1958 he he saw how close Peter Collins was with Enzo Ferrari for example yeah he he saw that and you
2: know my father had a, there was a lot wrapped up in the psychology of it all with with the drivers and the relationship to Enzo Ferrari you know my father had a very strict authoritarian father himself who who Enzo Ferrari almost reminded him of. And my father admitted to wanting to have that approval from Enzo Ferrari. He sought that approval. He wanted Enzo to love him and 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 really take him under his wing and give him that gratification that, that he never had from his own father. And it never would happen. That doesn't happen at Ferrari. Uh, but Enzo might lead you along to believe you're my favored son uh, for, for, for a minute. But uh, Peter Collins had that and lived across from the factory. It was just at the time that Enzo's son, Dino, was really getting more and more sick uh, with muscular dystrophy. And... Peter was very close with Dino and was very kind to Dino. And that just,
3: that that brought him in very good graces with the team. So Derek, it was was a wonderful career for your dad. I did want to ask you about one other thing because in 1966, one of the great car racing movies was made by John Frankenheimer, the film Grand Prix. And your dad drove the camera car in a lot of the scenes uh, for that movie. Did he ever talk to you about that, the experience? And, you know, the man who grew up in L.A. gets involved with Hollywood. I mean, that's the funny thing,
2: though. He grew up in L.A. That, that was nowhere near as exciting as, as, as a Formula One and sports car career with Ferrari. I mean, yes, uh, you know, it's a big Hollywood director and movie stars, but if you've ever been on a film set, it, it, it's like being in the Formula One paddock on a, on a Thursday afternoon. It's not the glamorous side of racing. And uh, things move slowly. And, you know, it's, I got to relate more to that having been a stunt driver on Ford versus Ferrari. And it, I did a lot of reading into what that Grand Prix experience
3: uh, was, uh, you know, filming for Grand Prix with my father. You can't just throw that into conversation, Derek. Stunt driver on Ford versus Ferrari. Yes, I got the call. Uh, it, I've had my own
2: brush with, with celebrity, with Christian Bale and Matt Damon. And, and uh, thank goodness it was, a, it was a success in the box office. People seemed to really enjoy it and, and, I, and I was proud to be part of a, what was, was an entertaining racing film. What cars were you driving? I was driving these were not real GT40s or, or Porsche's or Ferrari P3s, P4s. They were uh, film cars, movie cars, you know they were um, they, I won't even tell you what they were made of, but they were they looked good and they looked correct. But I was primarily driving GT40s, the GT40 uh, movie cars. Uh, And uh, we'd all bounce around and drive different cars. But I got to be Graham Hill for the start of the Le Mans race, uh, which was fun because I'm the first to get away if you watch the film. Uh, Then I got to be Bruce McLaren crossing the finish line uh, driving really closely in, in the scenes where Christian Bale, who, who's who's playing the main character Ken Miles, is looking over uh, over at Bruce McLaren, and we were I was just being placed wherever I needed to be, uh, you know, for for the director and for the stunt coordinator. It
3: was a lot of fun. I love the fact history repeats itself the old man in in the film Grand Prix and you in Ford versus Ferrari. But back to your dad, once he'd retired, Derek, what kind of a man did he develop into?
2: Oh, that's a, you know, my father was a very complex person, very complex. And I'm still learning about the man uh, years after he's passed away. And You know, he had to do a lot of soul-searching, a lot of soul-searching, because, you know, motor racing isn't necessarily a nurturing environment uh, to grow as a human being in terms of family and certain aspects, certain aspects I'm sure all drivers could agree on. And my father took it as far as he could as a racing driver in that environment, but beyond racing... I think he had to completely get away from it. He had to completely, completely remove himself from the sport uh, and almost look back at it like it was a meaningless pursuit. In fact, he went through years of feeling like it was a meaningless pursuit until he could kind of discover who he was. And uh, meeting my mother was, was a big, big step in his life and having a family. He went fully into his hobby of of antique cars and restoration. Uh, So he he became a more laid-back person uh, than he he had been as a racing driver. But um, still, he was very intense. And, you know, was he the perfect father? Not by any stretch. I mean, he himself was terrible at sports, at the typical sports one plays growing up. You know, over here, baseball and soccer and basketball and all those things. Uh, he, he he was terrified of even catching a ball, uh, you know, in, in a mitt. So he never engaged in that way with me. He never showed up at a Little League baseball game or a school event. And that was tough for me growing up. But where we really bonded was when I started racing cars and, and I had a really good, uh, few years there with being with my dad on the road and, and having a great
3: time with him, having a great time. Was he a competitive dad with you in that? <laughs> was he one of those dads who, I know you say he didn't play sports with you but just was he competitive with his children having a game of tennis he had to beat you he wouldn't he wouldn't let you win was he one of those kind of guys no because he didn't play those games oh okay not at all okay not at all (laughs) no i mean he would
2: he would see me watching uh basketball on on the telly and he would say what is that game throwing this ball in a basket and then he would walk out of the room (laughs) He just didn't get it. He didn't. He was 100% uh, an automotive guy and into cars all the way. So, you know, I I didn't have that relationship with him when it came to competition or anything.
3: I did love seeing the two of you on the road together in the early 2000s um, Mm. when you were doing Formula 3000 over here in Europe and dad Mm. coming to support. And actually, I'll never forget, you were testing at Jerez in Crikey, what was it, 2003? And uh, we all went down there together, Mm. didn't we? And and I remember we had two hotel rooms between the three of us. (laughs) And I sort of figured that you and I would be sharing a room and Dad would be on his own. And and Dad goes... "Um, no Tom, Derek needs his sleep, he's doing the driving you and I are sharing and we were in the- <laughs> if anyone listening to this has been to the hotel, I can't remember what it is, uh, but uh, what brand it is, but it, the, the hotel overlooking the track at Hereth. Phil and I are sharing this room, tiny room twin beds luckily and uh, <laughs> we turn the light out and I'm thinking okay, it's about 11 o'clock, time to go to sleep, turn the light out And suddenly your dad asked me a question about Formula One. So I give him a brief answer thinking, well, I'll just roll over, sleep on the other shoulder. And then that was it. We were off. The (laughs) lights were out and we were talking after lights out for about an hour. (laughs) But he just, Derek, he wanted to know everything, Mm. everything about what was going on in Formula One in 2003. And I loved his passion for it. I loved his Passion for for what you were doing as well the next day, him pacing up and down the pit lane as you were doing it, getting your laps. And it was um it was a wonderful thing.
2: I just remember a wedding happening, a Spanish wedding, which goes definitely all night and into the morning, uh, not getting a lot of sleep before that test. <laughs> <laughs> Unless but. that was
3: maybe your dad went and joined them after I'd gone to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Oh, but Derek, when you when you reflect on everything he achieved in motor racing, how proud does it make you feel
2: incredibly proud. I you know the word proud is a difficult one for me. I I it's it's all I ever knew who he was. Uh, I admire him immensely for what he accomplished and who he was. For all of his faults and quirks and, you know, not being the the, the normal d- fun dad that, that, that everyone might want to have. He was so interesting, and he lived such an interesting life, and he let you kind of ride the coattails. Uh, so you know, going with him to the Le Mans 24 hours or the Belgian or Italian Grand Prix as I did uh, on occasions and seeing just how the world just opened their arms to him and and the admiration that they had for him and seeing how much gratification that would give him and just sort of fill up his tanks with with, uh, just so much goodness – I don't know. I just saw that he was a he was somebody who lived his life to the absolute fullest, and was shameless about it. You know, it didn't matter uh, what what conformities he he might feel he he had to to have to, to to be you know a good father or a good this or good that. He he lived his life straight to what he loved, and that was motor racing. It was automobiles. And and he brought us as a family into it, uh, in in many ways. And so, I I just couldn't couldn't have asked for a better dad in that sense. It's been an it was an interesting
3: ride, having Phil as a dad. If he were alive today, and he died back in two thousand and eight. But if he were alive today, would he understand people making a fuss sixty years on? Would he appreciate it? Oh, he'd be
2: thrilled. He'd be thrilled to know um, he, he, he was still being honored. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, he'd want to know who, who's going to win the race. Is Max or Lewis? Who, what's, what's going on? What's next? I mean, I think he would be absolutely mind-blown that they're still racing at, uh, at Zandvoort, And, you know, it's great to see these
3: circuits are still being used. That, that he was racing on so many years ago. Derek, it's been a wonderful chat. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Tom. I found that a fascinating and at times incredibly moving conversation. Although I've known Derek for many years and I knew Phil... I learned so much about the great man and about the 1961 Italian Grand Prix specifically. Derek's description of that Monza weekend was incredibly powerful. First, the technical problems that Phil had to overcome, and then the struggles he had in convincing Ferrari to change the engine and the gearbox, right through to the aftermath of the race when Phil was crowned world champion. Derek, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. And for those of you wanting to know more about Phil Hill, I highly recommend you take a look at his book. It's called Inside Track, and head to philhillbook.com for more. And as ever, please send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Phil. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week, so send them to me at tomclarksonf one or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Mick Schumacher after last week's show. We received a lot of feedback, so thank you for engaging as much as you did. And let's start with this one from Elsa. After watching the Hungarian Grand Prix, I came to see how talented Mick is. Such a humble person, and I loved listening to your chat with him. I look forward to a time when he's competing for wins and podiums in Formula One. I'm sure he's a future gem. What lovely words, Elsa. And I agree with you, Mick is a humble and very engaging person. And what about this from Emerson Girard? I always listen to your podcast at work every week. I hope that doesn't stop you working, Emerson. Uh, It was amazing to listen to Mick and his incredible personality. I love his stories about his father and how he's driven his father's cars. I wish the best for his future in Formula One. Well, Emerson, thanks for that. And what a great name. Please tell me you're named after Emerson Fittipaldi. Mick's description of how he got used to the H-pattern gearbox in that Jordan really amused me a lot. And let's go to Matteo Guasco next, who sent this in. I wish all the best to Mick Schumacher. He truly deserves it. He sounds so calm and mature, despite his age. I wanted to hug him throughout the podcast. (laughs) What a lovely message, Matteo. You're right. Mick is very mature for his 22 years. And let's send him a group hug through the podcast. And finally, how about this from YNS Sykirin. Like father, like son. Great to hear from Mick. His ability to memorize, observe, be open to accepting changes, his passion towards racing, it all reminds me and makes me think of my idol Michael. Please convey my best wishes to Mick. Well, thanks a lot for that message. And I must say that I think Mick even sounds a little bit like Michael when he's talking. Now, as ever, I could read out loads more messages, but we'll have to leave it there for now. So thanks to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say. Well, that's almost it for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Phil Hill from his son, Derek. And don't forget to send in your thoughts and stories on him. And as ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
0: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you got
1: the Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.
0: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need.